here to bring us the word today is our associate pastor, Pastor Matt. Uh, thank you for joining us today here at Every Nation Church, Las Vegas. Like Pastor Roland said, my name is Matt. We are concluding our series in the book of Matthew, and we are approaching the end of the book. And the end of something has the ability to really captivate us and capture our attention. We see that throughout different sources of media, different mediums. And sometimes one thing that can really capture our attention is the end of a movie. If you can, shout out at me a movie ending that you love or that you can't stop thinking about or that you couldn't stop thinking about. Go ahead. Infinity War. What else? Marley. Oh, my gosh. Why do you got to do that to me? No, we're supposed to be happy and excited. Now I'm just heartbroken. And, of course, Infinity War is already one of the most watched movie scenes of all time, even though it just came out. It's the type of movie that just makes you make sure nobody's around. You're just like, I am Iron Man. You snap to yourself. One of the movies, it's a little over 10 years old now, but a movie that absolutely captured my attention. It captivated my friend group. It was Inception. And the ending of Inception had us obsessed and we talked about it, and we debated it, and we were opinionated about it. If you haven't watched Inception, you should. But in Inception, it's all about dreams. And in this movie, people have the ability to explore dreams, and then they explore dreams within dreams. And that's where that whole meme came from. And the ending of the movie, the, the team led by Leonardo DiCaprio's character, they succeed in their mission, and he finally gets to go and have a happy ending. Or does he? Is it real, or is he in a dream? Nobody knows. So I watched that movie twice. One of my friends watched it in theaters five times. And we were so passionate when we debated, hey, he is in a dream. No, he's in a dream within a dream. No, no, no. He's in real life, and it finally happened because he escaped the cycle of the dreams, and he made his dream real. Captured, interested, captivated. And in a very similar way, The things that the Bible tells us about the end times can absolutely captivate our attention. It can grab our minds and take our focus. And in Matthew, Jesus takes time to tell us a little bit about what the end of time might look like. In fact, it's so important that Matthew, who compiled the life of Jesus and he wrote it down, he actually dedicated two chapters, two long chapters. Matthew 24 and 25 is all a part of what's called now the Olivet Discourse, something that Jesus said, well, at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus places a lot of emphasis on this, so there's something for us to learn. And we're going to read a a passage from this uh, portion of Scripture right now. This is Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I remember the first time reading that passage in my Bible as a kid. I was horrified. Like, what is this about? And I couldn't stop thinking about it for days. So when we read something like this in Scripture, our mind might not leave it. Our heart might not leave it. 
So what on earth is Jesus talking about here? And we will touch on what he might be talking about. But more importantly, I think God cares about how we respond to what he tells us about the end of time. Because there are different ways we can respond to what the Bible tells us about the end. And that's the title of the message today, The End. But I do believe that there is a definitively correct response to what God has to say about the end times. And today, after we move through what the Bible says and talk about these different responses, together we will discover how to respond correctly to what the Bible teaches us about the end. But first, let's begin with prayer. God, thank you. I thank you that you and your wisdom thought it right to tell the world about what the end of time might look like. Lord, this world is not forever. So I pray that you would open the eyes of our mind and heart to see the things you want us to see, hear the things you want us to hear. Lord, use my mouth to say the things you want me to say. And Lord, let us leave here the way you want us to leave. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 24 begins as Jesus is leaving the temple in Jerusalem at the end of Matthew 23. And at the end of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is crying. He's upset and he's thinking back through the ages because he's God the Son and he's kind of been there the whole time. So he saw them execute the prophets. And he's crying over Jerusalem and weeping and saying how he wishes the city would turn to God, but not just turn to him because they've done that throughout their history, but stay with him, to be faithful to him. He says, I, would, I wish that you would come to me and I would gather you under my wings like a mother hen does their chicks. But you won't. So now Jesus is weeping and he's leaving the temple. So in Matthew 24, 1, the disciples say to Jesus, hey, look at the temple. Look at the buildings. Look at its beauty. And when I read that and I read the transition from one chapter to the next, I imagine Jesus crying. And the disciples just trying to be bros. They're just trying to make him feel better. Cheer him up. Jesus, look, it's so pretty today. It's such a clear day. The temple is made of marble right now. There's gold overlay. Look, it's, it's wonderful, Jesus. And he says to them, do you see this temple? I tell you that not one stone will be left upon another. And this would have been absolutely shocking to the disciples. Because at this moment in history, the temple is the physical symbol of their nation. It is the absolute center of their culture. It would be like telling us that the Statue of Liberty won't be standing in the future. That the White House will be torn apart. That the Washington Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, it will be torn asunder. And at this point, the disciples are probably shocked and intrigued and interested. And when we hear about the end times, we get interested too and we get intrigued. And if we allow this intrigue to grow, we can be obsessed with the end times. And we can be obsessed with what the Bible has to say about the end times. And I say that from personal experience because I was obsessed with the end times. Some of you might know of a Christian book series called Left Behind. Now, Left Behind is a fiction work um, imagining what the world might look like after the rapture takes place. Now, if you don't know what the rapture is, we'll touch on that too. Just wait for a moment. But that's what this whole series is about. So while other kids were reading Harry Potter, I was reading Left Behind. I was looking forward to the next book release. I remember one day I walked into Sam's Club because they had these books, and I asked the, the, owner, or the, the manager at Sam's Club, like, hey, when is the next Left Behind book coming? You were supposed to have it today. The manager's like, why are you reading this? You're like 10. So I was obsessed with these stories. And then they came out with the movies with Kirk Cameron. And then they had a song. I will not be left behind. And I didn't want to be left behind. Because I was obsessed. 
And before Left Behind ever came out, there was another book that came out in 1970 called The Late Great Planet Earth, written by Hal, uh, Hal Lindsey and Carol C. Carlson, I think. It's there. C.C. Carlson. I think the C.C. is Carol Carla Carlson. Don't quote me on that, though. And this book came out in 1970, and it was the New York Times bestseller across all nonfiction categories that year. Then in 1974 and 1975, they ran TV specials on this book. Those TV specials had 17 million viewers in the 1970s. The world was obsessed with the end times. And when resources like this or when news articles come out in modern days and people say, the world is ending, people can't help but ask the question, when is it actually going to end? And that's what the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew 24, 3. They asked him, when will these things take place, referring to the destruction of the temple, and what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? Now, in their mind, they probably only asked one question. Because to the first century Jew, they would have associated, hey, if the temple is going to be destroyed, the whole world is going to end. But then Jesus treats the answer to that question differently. And he doesn't answer anything regarding to the destruction of the temple, but he talks a lot about the end of the age and the end of time and the signs of his coming because those two events are separate. And here's what Jesus starts to say to them in Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. We'll go through verse 8 now. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus mentions different things throughout this passage, and he says they are the beginning of the birth pains, the beginning of labor pains. Now, I've never experienced labor pains, but I have seen them, and I do happen to know that labor pains are something that increase in frequency and in intensity as you get closer to childbirth. So Jesus is saying that everything he mentions right here will increase in frequency and intensity as the end draws near. And that's exactly what we see in the world today. We don't pay a lot of attention to this in America, but there are people cropping up what seems to be an increasing rate around the world claiming to be the second coming of Jesus. And I'll give you just one example. When we have services at UNLV, we meet at the student union, usually, and we are in room 224. To reach room 224, you walk down the hallway and you turn left. But if you turn right on the same day of the week, on Thursday, you will find another group meeting there, and they are called CARP. It's C-A-R-P. It should be C-R-A-P, but that's another story. CARP stands for the Collegiate Association for the Research of Principles. It is the collegiate branch of the Unification Church. The Unification Church, of course, was founded by Sun Myung Moon from Korea, North Korea. Sun Myung Moon claims to be, claimed to be, he's dead claimed to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. Some of you have heard of Moonies. This is where the Moonies come from. And when you say Moonies, you think of crazies, a very small sect. According to a 2018 report, there are 3 million Moonies worldwide. And that's just one example. Rastafarians, for example, believe that 
the second coming of Christ was a, a king in Ethiopia who was crowned in 1930. The king himself was a Christian. He vehemently denied this. He pointed people to Jesus. But people believed that Christ came again with a king that passed away. People are believing this more and more and more. Wars have obviously increased in frequency and intensity and just how terrible they are as history has progressed. Look at the wars that are recorded throughout history. Look at how close they start in age now. World War I and World War II alone. War every war throughout human history. And there are wars in the world today. Ukraine and Russia, rumors of wars, North Korea. I don't even want to get into it, but it's everywhere. Famine is increasing. Under the regime of Mao Zedong in China, between 40 to 80 million people died. Under the regime of Joseph Stalin in Russia, 6 to 20 million people died. And the vast majority of these tens of millions of people died to famine in the last century. And earthquakes seem to be increasing as well. A man named Paul Moga wrote this for a Parisian media um, source online called The World Crunch. He says, between 1900 and 1950, the earth recorded an average of 3.4 earthquakes per year with a magnitude greater than 6.5. That figure doubled to 6.7 a year until the early 1970s and was almost five times that in the 2000s. So, the birth pains seem to be increasing. But Jesus says, do not be alarmed, for these things must happen. I think one thing that we see, unfortunately, we do see in culture, whenever a big war, a rumor of war, or a big earthquake happens, is that people begin to sensationalize it and see, Jesus is coming tomorrow. Turn or burn. You don't want to be left behind. Read the books. It's there. But Jesus says, these are just the beginning of the birth pains. So there isn't a single war, famine, or earthquake that's meant to serve as the sign of his coming. However, they together, in their increasing frequency and intensity, are a sign that the return of Jesus is approaching. But then Jesus says in Matthew 24, 15, that there is a particular sign that we should look for. So let's read what he says. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, either adds Jesus or Matthew. This is also in Mark, by the way. There's a parallel version of this, all of it discourse in Mark. You can read it there too. So the abomination of desolation, Jesus is very, very intentional about mentioning this. And we don't have time to go there for the sake of time. Um, but Daniel writes about this abomination of desolation in chapters 9, 11, and 12. And to summarize this prophecy, it is that a leader will make peace with Jerusalem, peace with the people of Israel through either a peace treaty or a peace accord or something of that nature. And this peace treaty will last for a defined period of time. Then this same leader will break the treaty by walking into the temple in Jerusalem and desecrating that temple in the Holy of Holies. Now, people for the last 2,000 years have debated exactly what that means and what that will look like. And this is where people's attention gets captivated and people begin to focus and passionate debate happens in the body of Christ. In preparation for this sermon, I started to study and one of the first people I looked to was my favorite apologist, Dr. William Lane Craig. 
And I thought, hey, maybe Dr. William Lane Craig made a nice five to 10 minute video about the end times that I can use to research and brush up on things as I prepare to speak to God's people. So I looked it up on YouTube, and instead of finding one video that's five to 10 minutes long, I found several videos. I found an entire playlist. It's like 13 or 14 videos, and all are longer than half an hour, all about the end times. Passionate. So some people will take the position and say, well, Jesus said that within this generation, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And Jesus' prophecy regarding the temple took place in 70 AD. Not one stone was left upon another. And that means that everything already happened. But other people will say, hold on for a second, because Jesus was very intentional about mentioning Daniel and the timing in Daniel and the ruler and everything that the Bible says in Matthew 24 about the signs in the heavens um, in astronomy didn't happen. Oh, and by the way, Jesus didn't come back. It's like this is the futurist view. That's the preterist view. I believe, and we'll talk about how we hold belief as Christians in a moment. I believe that the futurist view, that the return of Jesus is coming, that these prophecies are yet to be fulfilled, that it is the clearest application and interpretation of Scripture, and it's actually the more historical view of the church, including the early church fathers. But it's fine to be a Christian that believes either thing. But if you do believe that Jesus is coming back in the future and these things are yet to be fulfilled, it begs more questions. For example, how is the abomination of desolation supposed to happen if the temple no longer exists? That means the temple would have to be rebuilt. And then you get further into biblical prophecy and you read things like Revelation 20 that talks about a millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And some people will argue the position that Jesus will set up a literal kingdom to last for about a thousand years on the earth before he judges the living and the dead and the world as we know it comes to an end and he creates a new world. And within this camp, there's even more debate because that's where people start to debate like, hey, before that happens, there will be a tribulation and Jesus will come and take his church and take his people up in something called a rapture before the tribulation. And that's what the rapture refers to. The taking of Christians who are alive to meet Jesus in the air where they will be transformed and have a body like his. The Bible seems to allude to this in Matthew 24 and in 2 Thessalonians 4 and in different places. Now some people will argue this will happen before a final moment of suffering. But some people who also believe that Jesus is coming to set up a kingdom will say, no, it happens in the middle. That's going to happen at the middle. And yet other people believe that this is all going to happen at the end of the tribulation and all that the Bible tells us about God gathering his saints into the air happens at the end and it will only happen once and not twice. And then from left field come other people and they say, well, the millennium is actually right now because the kingdom of God is the church of God and we are supposed to spread the gospel and spread goodness in the world until Jesus comes back and when we make the world a better place, that's when Jesus will return. And then off in the corner, there are guys like, it's all symbolic. It's all symbolic. He's just going to come back one day, no matter what we do. And all of this discussion happens. There are books about this and debates about this, and people get their minds fixed on this. And it's good to be interested and to want to know more. It's a good thing. However, we must not become obsessed. Because if we get obsessed, we may find ourselves feeling like a man named Matthew Emmons. Matthew, book of Matthew, Matthew Emmons. Matthew Emmons was an American Olympian. Maybe he's still active. He competed in riflery. And in 2004, Matthew Emmons was prepared 
to win his second gold medal. He had a substantial lead over the competition. So he aimed at the target 50 meters away. Ready, aim, fire, bullseye. And he finished in eighth place. Now why could he finish in eighth after having a substantial lead and hitting a bullseye in the final round? He hit the wrong target. And because he had the wrong target, he wasn't able to receive the reward that he was prepared to receive. And if we as Christians focus on the end times to the point of obsession, where we miss the mission of God, we will end up hitting the wrong target. And unfortunately, there is collateral damage when you hit the wrong target. The late great planet Earth essentially prophesied that the end of the world would come in the 1980s. Spoiler alert, it didn't. And we're also here, which is why more books were written. And when that happened and the prophecy and prediction failed to come to pass, people began to doubt their faith and some people walked away. And many people became unnecessarily critical of Christianity over a doctrine that probably didn't need to be taught in the first place at least not with the level of focus and detail that it was. We don't want to hit the wrong target. and We don't want to hit people. So we should not obsess over the end times. But does that mean we should ignore the end times? Because we might not care about the end times. We might be able to live our lives like nothing's going to change. And Jesus addresses this attitude in, toward the end of Matthew 24. He says this in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Time out. If you ever see on Yahoo, I, I see this a lot on Yahoo, because during fantasy football season, I'm on Yahoo several times a day. And it seems like every year, somebody wants to predict that the world is ending. When you see that, or when you hear this in media, or you see it on TikTok, or whatever, remember that Jesus said, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So in order to interpret this passage correctly, we obviously have to think about Noah. And in Genesis, when God tells Noah that judgment is coming through the flood, Noah starts to build the ark. It's a kid's church song. Who built the ark? Noah, Noah. Who built the ark? Brother Noah built the ark. Noah built the ark. So Noah starts building the ark, and he's hammering away, and it's taking a long time because they don't have power tools. But at the same time that he's building the ark, he's preaching righteousness and repentance to the world around him. And absolutely no one listens. And no one listens because they are eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now, the Greek here implies a couple of things. One, eating and drinking talks about doing the same old thing, business as usual, going about your daily routines, essentially drifting through life. And the marrying and giving in marriage isn't saying that marriage is wrong. It's actually describing the festivals that were associated with marriage and habitual pursuit of pleasure. So what this passage is saying, that in the days of Noah, people were going about their daily lives, doing business as usual, and pursuing pleasure. People were drifting, and people were pursuing the wrong things. 
And when Jesus comes back, it'll be the exact same way. And that's also what we see today because people are drifting through life. People are going to work and paying the bills, going to school and graduating. Great job, guys. And these are good things. But the problem of drifting without any intention is that it's almost impossible to get to the destination you want if you're just drifting. Try it out. Go into a pool or a flat body of water with no current. Climb onto a flotation device. Pick a spot on the shore and figure out how many times you'll have to let go and drift until you'll reach the destination you want. How long would that take? How many attempts do you need? It will probably never happen because you never get what you want. You'll never get where you want to go if you're just going to drift. And if all we're doing is drifting through life, we will never experience the plan and purpose of God for us. We need to get off our flotation devices and pedal. We need to swim. We need to walk. We need to do something. Climb along the edge of the pool. Just do something. Or we pursue the wrong thing. And we go the opposite direction. And we see that in Vegas constantly. We see it more this weekend than usual. Because EDC is in town causing traffic. The reason why EDC and other festivals get so big is because it's a counterfeit approximation of heaven, by the way. It's the closest thing the world can produce to what heaven will look like. People from every tribe, every nation, singing and rejoicing with music, dressed in ways that make them feel free. Fireworks and colors and noise and lights, just an incredible, enthralling experience. That's what heaven is going to be. And it'll be a thousand, billion, million times more and yet the world is trying to produce that feeling. But that's another sermon. People are drifting, and they're pursuing their own things. And Jesus says, that is what the world will be like when I come back. So he begins to warn us. And when you go from Matthew 24 to Matthew 25, you read a parable of ten virgins. And in this parable, ten virgins are invited to a wedding. And the groom is on his way, but he's late in coming. He's taking a while. So five of the virgins took oil, extra oil for their lamps. Five virgins did not. And there came a moment where they heard a cry in the middle of the night saying, the groom is coming, get your lamps ready. Half of the people said, well, we didn't bring enough oil. You guys, you had enough oil. Give us what you have. And they say, that doesn't make any sense because there's only enough for us. Go into the town, get yourself some oil and come back and we'll be ready. But when they went away into the town, the groom came, they went to the wedding, and the five who were ready experienced that festivity, and the others who were not ready did not. Obviously, this is about the return of Christ. The virgins represent purity. Jesus is coming back for more than just literal virgins, thank God. And those of us who are prepared for the return of Christ will get to experience his kingdom. But we need to be prepared. A more modern example might be having your phone charged. Because if you're expecting an important phone call, a job opportunity, a doctor, maybe a friend is picking you up and you're waiting for your ride, you can't just sit there with your phone on 1%. You need to be able to answer the phone. You need to be ready when the call comes. So we need to have our phones charged. We need to have our lives ready. Because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. Now, it would seem, if we believe what the Bible says about the abomination of desolation, that the temple has to be rebuilt first. Like, okay, we have some time. 
you know how fast that could take? How quickly that would accelerate? Pastor Roland told me a story after he got back from Israel where they took them on a tour guide and off in the distance they pointed out a line of soldiers carrying weapons. And they told the group, whatever you do, do not cross that line because you will cause an international incident. The nation of Israel has been in constant state of war since it was restarted in 1948. They could rebuild the temple tomorrow. We have to be ready. We don't want to miss the coming of Christ. And even if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, we don't want to drift through life and miss the plan of purpose and plan and purpose of God for us. And we want to be able to prepare the next generation well. So we need to be ready. That means we should not obsess and focus on the end times, but we should not ignore them either. What then is the proper response? We can be aware. We can be aware of the times we're in and live with purpose. We shouldn't be scared. We shouldn't be hiding under a blanket. We shouldn't turn the other way and close our eyes and say to ourselves, well, if I'm not looking, it's not going to come. We can be aware. The season is changing. It's getting hot in Vegas right now. When it's getting hot, you take the warm clothes for winter. You put them away. You put the sweatpants away. The jackets go to the back of the closet. And the shorts come forward. And the shorter sleeve shirts come forward. And I don't wear the long sleeves to church anymore. I wear the polo that I don't have to iron, which is why I wear it all the time. You adjust to the season and you live that way. We need to adjust to the season and live this way. So we be aware and we live well. How do we live well? Matthew 24, in the middle-ish of the chapter, Jesus says two things that I believe define how we as Christians live well as we prepare for his coming. Here they are, Matthew 24, 13 and 14. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Two things. First, we endure and excel. I added the word excel because the Greek probably implies that. Uh, the literal Greek translation of the word endure here means to bear up under a load and to carry it. And we see an illustration of this in Matthew chapter 25. Because after the parable of the ten virgins comes the parable that many of us know. It's the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, a man calls three of his servants to himself. He's preparing for a journey. He's going to go away. And so he gives each of his servants talents to care for while he's gone. Now, a talent was a sum of money. It's, it's not like singing and dancing. So some scholars think that a talent represented about 60 pounds. So 60 pounds of gold and silver, single talent. Or about 6,000 denarius. So about 20 years of wages for the average worker. It's a lot of money. It's a lot. And the man, the master, gives one servant five talents, another servant two talents, and another servant one talent. And even the servant with one talent has a lot to account for. And then he says, hold on to what I've given you. Do something with it. Work with it. Take care of it. Grow it. Because one day I'll come back. We'll see how you did. The man goes away. The servants get to work or not. One day he comes back and he calls them to himself. 
man with five talents appears before his master and says, you gave me five talents. And I went to work. And it was hard. But I did something with what you gave me. And now I have five more. The man says to this servant, well done. Good and faithful servant. The man with two talents comes and says, you gave me two talents. You gave me a lot. You gave me plenty of opportunities. And it was discouraging at times, but I kept going. And here I am today. And I have two more talents in addition to the two you gave to me. The man looks at this servant and says, well done. Good and faithful servant. And the one with one approaches him and says, I was afraid. Because I know you're hard and righteous and fair. Man, and I didn't want to lose the talent you gave me. So I just hid it away. I did nothing with it. But here it is. The man judged this servant appropriately. And this is what it will be like when Jesus returns because God has given us talents. He's given us a load to carry in this life. He's given us life. Take a, take a deep breath. We're talking about the end time. Some of us need to take a deep breath. Take another one. God gave you that. What are you going to do with it? What are we doing with that? With our relationships? With our opportunities? With our finances? With our friendships? With our actual talents that we have? What are we doing with what God gave us? We are meant by God to endure, to keep going when it's hard, and to excel. So that's one way we live with purpose, when we endure and excel. And we do something with what God gave us. The second way we do something with it is through evangelism. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I don't know about you. Sometimes I just wish Jesus would come back already. Because I'm tired of hearing about the war in Ukraine. I'm tired of hearing about racial inequality. I'm tired of hearing about social injustice. I'm tired of hearing about people being bankrupt and genocide happening in China. I'm tired of all of it. I'm ready for Jesus to come back. The return of Jesus and being with him should be the hope of the church. And according to Jesus, we can do something about it. This gospel of the kingdom will, proclaim, will be proclaimed as a testimony to the whole world all nations, then the end will come. The implication here is that when we reach every people group, we can actually hasten the return of Jesus. We can do something about this. We can do something. We can go. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can do something. When Jesus says, go to all nations, the word nations is ethnos, it's people groups. When every people group on the face of the earth has heard the gospel, then, sometime after that, then he'll come back. So let's bring him back. That's why we send out world missions. That's why we start churches. That's why we reach our neighbors. 
And that's why we do campus ministry. The nations are here in the first row, in the second row. Iowa is representing Nigeria. Mav is representing the Philippines. We have nations, we have continents represented right here. In our life group, we had Park from Korea who went back, and when he went back, he said, you guys changed my life. I'll never forget you. When we reach the campus, we reach the world. The future of society is on the campus today. The future of the future leaders are on the campus today. So let's reach the campus today. Let's reach our neighbors today. Let's reach people. That is what Tam Nibana is preparing to do. And we've talked about this in church before. She's preparing to leave her job as a registered dietitian to go and invest her life to reach the campus. And instead of me telling you more about this, I want to give Tam a moment to share this. Uh, she'll come up, she'll share, we'll close the sermon, and then Pastor Roland and myself will pray for her. But give it up for Tam as she comes. Thank you, Matt. Um, yeah, I just wanted to touch a little um, about evangelism and reaching out to the college campuses. Um, back in 2020, after my first campus conference, I shared on this very stage that I wanted to help students to know that they can get through anything with God by their side. And though I said that back then, I had no idea what that entailed. I thought I was just going to keep volunteering and stay comfortable with my job as a dietitian. But as the saying goes, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Now God has called me to evangelize on the campus and I used to be so intimidated by that word, but it's simply just sharing the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. God has given me a clear vision and purpose to reach out to the lost and brokenhearted, to build a Christ-centered community, and to make a lasting impact at UNLV and Las Vegas overall. We already see this happening now because of our students who have shared the gospel and their faith with their friends and classmates. Over the last few years, I've been able to help disciple a few students and organize our life groups and events. Even in my downtime at work, I'm texting students, planning meetups and everything. And we can only do so much as volunteers, and yet we've seen so much growth over these last few years. Isaiah 43, 19 says, For I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. And this is exactly what God is doing at UNLV, and I am so excited to see him move in these next months and years to come. A new season is approaching for myself and for the next generation, and it's an honor and privilege to really go all in and give God and the campus my 110%. Thank you, Tam. We'll pull her back up in a second. But before we pray for Tam, you know, it's no accident that God gave her the same scripture that he gave Pastor Roland at the end of worship today because he wants to make a way through the wilderness. And he wants streams to flow in the desert. And God is making a way for Tam to get to the campus to reach students full time. And by the way, she won't be the last one. God will call other people forward one day. But in the meantime, he's calling some of us to be a part of the way for her. And all of us are called to walk in the way that God has called us to. To endure a 
excel and evangelize, to use our jobs, skills, and passions where we live, work, and play to advance the kingdom of God. So what are you doing with the talents that God gave you, with the life and opportunities that God gave you? Because we can do something in response to what the Bible says about the end times. We must not obsess and we must not ignore it. Let's be aware of this season and let's endure. Some of you are tired. I get it. I've been tired. Endure. Endure. God is calling us to excel. God is calling us to evangelize, which simply means to declare the good news. And this gospel of the kingdom will be declared as a testimony to every nation. And then the end will come. So the correct response to everything the Bible says about the end times is just to be aware and to live well. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you didn't want us to be complacent and you didn't want us to be afraid, but you wanted us to be aware and you wanted us to prepare by living well. So Lord, in this moment, I pray that you would show us how to live well in each of our own lives, the opportunities we can use, the relationships we can leverage, the people we can bring into your kingdom. And with heads bowed and eyes closed across this room today, if you're here and you want to be right with God, that starts by making Jesus the Lord and Savior and Master of your life. And if you need to do that this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. So if you want to start that relationship with Jesus today, then on the count of three, I invite you to raise your hand. One, two, three. Anybody here that want to make, wants to make that choice to walk with Jesus? Thank you. I saw your hand. Anybody else here? Thank you. I see your hand. Anybody else? Anybody? I think I see you. I see you. Anybody else? Praise God. Praise God. So here's what I want you to do. I invite you to repeat after me, because the church repeats along with us, a prayer to confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Say, Father in heaven, I believe that you sent Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, I believe you lived, died, rose again, and that you're coming again. I choose to live for you. I choose to follow you. You are my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.